What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the most powerful person in the music business, the CEO and president of Live Nation, Michael Rapino. Michael, good to have you on. Thank you, Bob. Long overdue. Appreciate the, the time. Okay. I know you're a voracious reader of business books. What are you reading right now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what's my latest? Um, I'm right now reading, but I'm, I'm, I actually, I won't want to say I'm reading. I'm, I'm pretty deep into podcasts now. So I'm, uh, I, I run every day and I'm podcaster my game. Um, and I have found this very smart Canadian guy, of course, uh, Shane Parrish, the Knowledge Project. I find him fascinating. He goes very deep all amongst a lot of different uh, kind of uh, strains of life. So he's he's been my latest obsession, and I've been going deep on him on YouTube and and podcasts. And what do you learn from him? He's a real thinker. So his whole his whole business is about the Knowledge Project. Is just a lot about how do you make decisions, how do you think about life, how do you how do you make the tough. Uh, life decisions, business decisions. So he he kind of uses that framework amongst all the different candidates, whoever they they're interviewing. So uh, I, I like his real methodical thinking. Okay, there's been uh, talk recently that the head of Google delays decisions to the company's detriment. How do you make a decision, and how fast or slow do you make a decision? Uh, no, that's I think that's a really valid point. I, I, I have, I've been all about the speed of decisions since my early days. I, I had a young, uh, as a young, young uh, uh, executive, I had a great mentor who, who really drilled in that idea that, you know, a 70% good, fast decision moves the organization. Um, so, so, so do it. So I, I'm a pretty good distiller. So I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with making fast, quick decisions with enough information, enough detail um, that keep things moving. So fully agree with you. That would be an ongoing pet peeve of mine. Uh, make, make, make enough, make, uh, the decisions with enough information to keep things moving. We can fail fast. What's the worst decision you've made? 
probably the same ones that I made too fast. Um, yeah, listen, I, I, an Italian uh, blood inside of me gets the emotion going. So I'm probably like everyone else, the decision I've made that was probably fueled on emotion and didn't spend uh, a few extra hours or days um, thinking that one through was probably the ones that have gotten me in trouble. So anything that was emotion driven and I didn't digest enough uh, is the ones that got me in trouble over my days. And do you find you should trust your instincts or after you gather more information, do you ultimately make a different decision, which is better? No, I think I don't live in a lot of regrets. So I, I, I'm, I believe still in the end of the day, the speed of the decision process wins out long-term. We know none of us hit, you know, a hundred percent. So uh, if you get 70% of those decisions, right, but you're moving everyone forward. I mean, my organization, the employees, you see it, they just want decisions, good, bad, or indifferent. They want, they want direction and decisions and they want decision makers. And most of the time that's, uh, that's the part that, uh, that they, they look for. So, Geez, over the last 18 months, it was all about decisions. I didn't know which ones were going to be right and wrong, but they wanted answers and we had to make decisions and uh, we got probably 70% of them right. Okay. Let's talk about the last year and a half. What do we know? March, 2020, Live Nation, along with the stock market in general, crashes. It ultimately rebounds, but then it goes through the roof, but there were no shows. Why does the stock go through the roof when there are no shows and no income? Right, the great question. Right, the uh, <laughs> the uh, the anticipation. I, you know, listen. I don't want to get into all the math, but I think the reality was, you know, Live Nation's been public for fifteen years. So uh, I'm going to say for ten of those years, we were eight dollars. People didn't quite understand us. Um, they didn't get the market. And I had been preaching experience economy for for many years, and how important the live show was and that, that we were this, these social creatures and getting gathering for these two hours were magical. Um, and only the last three, four years did my, start, my stock start to respond as we kind of produced good results and the market went, I get this thing called experience economy and live, the live events, very powerful. So we were already on our way up, you know, at 76 or whatever before the crisis. So we had already got good investor credibility that we had delivered what we said we we're going to deliver. And they started to really understand this thing called live. As you know, Bob, the market had talked about recorded music for 50 years. So it, we were always kind of the stepchild to the story. Only the last five years, I think, did the market go, you know, this thing called live uh, at Live Nation is a, is a real credible big business. And it's is important to the artist, as is the record business. So we had already built up the credibility. You're right. Mark, the market crashes, everybody drops, and we do no shows. So why does our stock go up? Well, at that point, you know, a few interesting things happened. You know, when the when the crisis happened, there were people on the Wall Street and elsewhere that were saying, oh my God, no one's going to ever gather again. It's over. We're all going to be, you know, living in our houses forever. No one's going to go to a, a movie theater or a concert. And I always remember it was the May long weekend and there was the CNN reports from late, I think it was the Ozark Lakes where everyone was partying like crazy. And in the middle of this crisis with no vaccine, that, that moment still showed that no matter how dangerous it was, people still wanted to gather. People wanted to get out. And so the, the market started to realize, wow, this is really going to be a pent up demand situation. 
when when we can gather, it's clear people want to gather. They're going to run back. They're going to want to come back to shows, um, Disneyland, uh, all, all the good things they do when 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 life's normal. So I started. To, so we started to see that. The second big news was when the crisis happened. We modeled out probably fifty to seventy percent refund rate. We assumed that the world was going to want their tickets back, um, given the economy was about to to take a hit. Again, two months later, I got on an earnings call and I tell the Wall Street that we've only had, I think at that point it was 7% refund rates. This idea that you would sell all these tickets in the middle of a crisis and people held on to that ticket. That was probably the most important fact that if you were an investor, you went, there must be something magical about a live show that while everyone is unemployed, sitting at home, worried about gathering, they're holding on to that Billie Eilish ticket. They're not going to sell it. So this this must be a magical moment in their lives. This must be important to them. Um, and um, so you, you added that in. That started to get investors realizing, remember, Wall Street's buying the future, not the present. So you don't buy your stock today worried about what my company is going to do this month. You buy it there. So if you're an investor looking at Live Nation, you probably said, well, I think this live experience uh, business in general is going to boom. We're seeing that happen. Uh, I think that the low refund rate definitely delivers that factual story. And then we did our own work. We went in and cut a lot of costs. And we were able to tell Wall Street that when we do come back, we've had the luxury of having some time off. We're going to operate a bit more efficiently. We've, we've said to the Wall Street, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll still do the same amount of shows, but on a smaller cost basis. So if you're an investor and you already valued me at $75 going into the crisis, you sat here and said, what do I think about the future? I think they're going to be leaner than than they were before they went in. So they'll make a bit more money. I think there's a boom happening. And this thing called live must be really, really valuable to customers because there's not even cashing it in in one of the greatest crises in, uh, in history. Uh, I want to bet on this category and I want to bet on the market leader. So that I think of anything, sometimes the digital reality of everyone staying home had happened, proved to a lot of investors how important the social uh, concert experience really is and how endearing it is to the customers. And we're seeing that play out. What do you think the value of Live Nation is? Is there headroom? Yeah, I've always believed that, you know, we're we're this incredible, listen, I believe in live for a long time. So I've been saying this, you know, for many, many years. Um, I, I think recorded has its side of the world, but I think live is is very, very unique. It's, if you think about live music, it's the only unduplicatable asset that's really survived this entertainment revolution. Everything else has pretty much got duplicated and digitized. Um, and, and, and that's great. But the two hours, Bob, as you know, those goosebumps you get when you watch the Eagles, uh, um, you don't get that on an iPad. So we have this very unique industry that is non-duplicatable. Um, in, in, a, in a world where everything else has become duplicatable and commoditized, I think this category has a long life. It's been, you know, since the caveman days, we've been dancing around music. I think uh, my 10-year-old, my 8-year-old can't wait to go to a concert. And now they find them differently. They, you know, they YouTube, TikTok, all the different ways they're discovering it has changed. But they still want to go see Post Malone um, at a live show. They still want to see it. So I believe that the future of live is stronger than ever. Two is, you know this from your record days. Live was really unexploited because it wasn't a global business. Live followed the record business. So for 30 or 40 years, you only toured where you sold records. 
which basically meant you were a U.S. Western Europe business. That's all the labels cared about in generally for 30 or 40 years. The minute the internet unlocked, the fan uh, was everywhere. So Rihanna has 200 million followers, regardless of where her record was sold. She's got, you know, 30 million followers in Brazil. So now we can go to Brazil and sell out stadiums. We weren't able to be a global business before because we really could only go tour where the record label was selling the record, promoting the album, buying the airplay. Overnight, that 19-year-old in Milan, Cape Town, uh, is discovered the artist on their own. And now that fan is global. So our business has been booming because as big as you think Live Nation is, uh, we're 30% market share on a global basis. We've we got lots of markets that are on fire and going to grow over the next 10 years that are just finally getting great venues in South America, South, uh, Eastern Europe, Asia. Um, so it'll be a global business, um, lots of growth globally for the next you know, multiple years as the, as the infrastructure gets built and the artist goes global. So this industry has got a lot of upside in it. So who owns Live Nation stock? Can you break it down as generally? Yeah, it's a, so it's obviously a public company traded, uh, uh, you know, freely stock. The uh, Liberty Media, uh, which, so Liberty Media was an investor in IAC, which was Ticketmaster. So they owned 15% of Ticketmaster. When we merged with Ticketmaster, we, uh, we inherited uh, Liberty Media, uh, which is John Malone, Greg Maffei. So they've been there now the last, I don't know, eight years or so. They've increased their stake. And they currently own 30% of Live Nation, and then 70% of Live Nation is freely traded amongst uh, you know, the public and institutions. Okay. Malone, uh, he's, the name of the company has changed a few times, but he made his money in the cable business and has had great success. His right-hand person is Greg Maffei, who is chairman of the Live Nation board. So what does he do or what input would he might have that would influence the direction of the company or your thinking? Well, I, listen, I, I don't want to undersell or oversell. I, you know, a board Liberty's been an incredible shareholder and John Malone and Greg, I, I give them full credit because they play long um, and, um, and they, they, they always let the operator and the CEO do his job. And you've, John's history has been clear on that, whether you've seen the recent days that David Zasloff move that John controls, uh, Mike Freeze. Most, most of his history is about backing good CEOs um, and letting them do what they do. So they've been incredible shareholders. I mean, again, when we were eight bucks and ten bucks, uh, not once would Greg or John talk about the stock price. We just talked about how we're going to grow the company. So they've been great, real long-term shareholders. That's the best thing you can hope for in, in any equity or any debt you have is that they're playing long, uh, long with you. Um, given I'm playing long, my entire uh, equity since I started this company 15 years ago and went public has been about my equity, not my pay. So I'm only playing for long-term equity and you want your shareholders playing for that. So they've been great. Uh, Greg is, a, is, is the, you know, we've had multiple chairmen. Now Greg has been the chairman. He's been very supportive. Um, but Liberty does not bother me in any operational part at all. And, and a board doesn't do that. That's not their job. We, hit, we meet four times a year and we talk about long-term strategy. How are we going to grow the company? What are the opportunities to grow it? What do I need? What does the company need? What resources um, to help grow our vision. So we set the strategy internal. We, we show up at board meetings with our vision, our long-term plan, 
And their job is to ask the tough questions to make it a better plan and then ultimately support it. But zero operation input, only long-term resource input. Now, one thing, you know, we live in the era of disinformation and misinformation. As we've discussed previously, Liberty cannot literally take over all the stock. There's a limit on their percentage. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, it's we, we ended up inheriting a shareholder agreement that was the Ticketmaster IAC t- uh, shareholder agreement. So when we t- when they merged in with us, we inherited it. Liberty has two board seats and maximum thirty uh, percent uh, equity ownership, um, and that's uh, that's kind of where they are at. And we've been thrilled to have them at that. Um, so they can't buy more stock in theory uh, under the shareholder agreement. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of, uh, been in place now for 10 plus years and, and, and will, will exist as long as, uh, as the board and, the, and, uh, and Liberty think it makes sense. Okay. Needless to say, Live Nation is a public company. Do you do have quarterly earnings reports to what, how much of your time is based on servicing Wall Street? Obviously you're on the calls, but, and you have a CFO, how much of your time does it take? Doesn't take much of my time. I got a great team and, you know, you build a great team around you. You know, we've been public for 15 years now. So this is, this is not a, a, a new skill to us, if you want to call it. It's, uh, it's baked into our DNA and corporate staff. So Joe, Joe Bertoff is my president CFO. His team's amazing. They do all the hard work, uh, all the audit work, all of the financial work, all the preparation for the reports. Uh, I, I, I have limited... Um, you know, input into all of that uh, in terms of the, the governance of it. My job is to set the vision and deal with the, the future of the business and the strategy of the business. So it doesn't take a lot of my time. It absolutely takes a lot of their time. And if you worked in their department, they 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 would tell you that's a that's a lot of work. But it's a contained corporate group that works with them to get those reports done and our earn, earnings done. But you know, listen, I, I, AEG I'm sure is no different. I'm sure Phil is not letting them. Uh, off the hook very easily. I'm sure they're preparing week, monthly, and Jay and others are answering to to, to Denver and preparing um, whatever they've got to prepare on a monthly and a bi-monthly basis to uh, to keep growing their business. So anytime you get to a certain state of big, someone is asking where the where the business is and looking for ongoing reports. So I, I just say that in the sense of I never, I, I always have said I don't don't find public being a negative on my business. I, I've always said, I think being public has been a great, great advantage to my business for the last 15 years um, because it does take you out of the bubble that you live in in the music business. And it makes you better because ultimately when you're dealing with Wall Street or investors, um, they don't care that I know um, you know Bono. What they care about is what's the business all doing? What what What's the prospects of the business? How are you going to grow the business? So it does get you out of that bubble of music relevance that we all think we live in. And then it, you have to cross that street and talk to adults about what is your, really your business and what's the core of your business and how are you going to grow your business? And I think that's made us healthy um, because we've been able to keep one foot in the core of what the business is about, but also step outside of the echo chamber of Hollywood and the music business and talk about our business from a more strategic perspective. Um, and I think that's made us good. Um, and also, you know, as you, you've seen, we got to wake up four times a year and 
and deliver and talk out loud about what we're going to do and actually deliver that. Um, so that accountability um, has, I think, made us, made us a much better company. Okay. Now, the average punter would say, you want a company with no debt. I remember when Irving was still working at Live Nation, says, you know, if you have no debt, you have a lazy uh, balance sheet and you're ripe for a takeover. How much debt does Live Nation have and what's its philosophy in debt? For those who really don't understand, can you play that out a little bit? Right. Yeah, that was my famous first uh, earnings call. When we went public in 2005, I was, when we spun out of Clear Channel, they were going to... I remember we're going to add add four or five hundred million in debt to us, and I convinced Randall and Mark Mays that we didn't want that debt. I wanted to start with a fresh, clean slate so we could build our business. And and Randall Mays, who's still on my board, was supportive. So I'm very proud that I have no debt. In my first earnings call, an analyst gets on and says, "You have a lazy balance sheet," and I had no idea what he was talking about. Only on on an earnings call would you find out that no debt was a bad thing. Um, so yes, that's the famous lazy balance sheet. Um, no, so you know the, the prospect of debt is simple. You're, you're going to grow a company, um, and you're going to ultimately need to borrow debt to grow your business as you're building your business. Um, and you know, depending on what era you're in, what's the cost of debt? Debt historically has been fairly cheap. So we look at we look at Live Nation. Most companies look at what is your your kind of your leverage rate against your profit, your EBITDA. And you never want to be, you know, too over leveraged. We've always been somewhere around three times leverage. So that would mean whatever my EBITDA is, we would have three times that in debt. That would be considered a very, very safe balance sheet, um, a smart balance sheet, because if you could borrow two, 3% dollars to help grow your company and you can get a better return for that debt, then what the cost is, you should do that. Um, so we've always been in that. We're living right now, even through this crisis, because we had a conservative balance sheet going in. We're probably leveraged at four times, and by the time we get through twenty-two or twenty, yeah, twenty-two, we'll start putting uh, paying back down our debt, and we'll live somewhere in the three times leverage debt, which would be very, very conservative on Wall Street. Companies you hear about that get in trouble would be seven, eight time leverage on their on their EBITDA. Um, but we've always been very conservative and we'll stay in that same range. Okay, let's leave the finance behind for a moment and go more down to the street and the consumer level. What we hear is America is open for business. Live shows are returning. Generally speaking, very few live shows have played of a major caliber, not small club shows and not socially distant shows. So we had the Foo Fighters at MSG. Certainly Vegas is open. But as we talk, the Delta variant is raging. Now, 99.5% of the people who are getting that are the unvaccinated. But the first question is, when can we expect, or is it still in the balance, Full playing of shows. Well, last weekend was really the start for us. Our amphitheater season opened last uh, last Friday, so that would have been you know Jimmy Buffett, Luke Bryan sold out amphitheater shows from Boston all the way down Nashville, etc. So that that was our first weekend of full. We've got twenty seven amphitheater tours started last weekend, so we're fully kind of committed now on 
across the board, amphitheater season is full open, full capacity. Um, and our first big festival is in two weeks. It's rolling loud in Miami with a couple hundred thousand people. So as of now, uh, we're fully open. The UK opens on Monday and we have 11 uh, large festivals happening in the UK in the month of August. So aside from all of the, 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 the Delta uh, recent news uh, seem to be full full steam ahead in uh, in all states and in the UK. Rest of the world looks like it's gonna gonna be a few months um, up until maybe six months behind, depending on where they are. But we still still are uh, on schedule and opening up right now across America. Okay, let's just say if you print a disclaimer, let's start from the threshold. Some of these acts are printing disclaimers. Vaccinated people only, okay? We all know that in the honor system, there are people who slip through. What is Live Nation's feeling about this, and where does the liability lie? Do you have lawyers who say, ultimately, your disclaimers work, or they think they're going to work, or you buy insurance? Is it the act? Is it Live Nation? Amplify that, please. I mean, it's all, it's all new territory, as you know. Uh, you know, would I, would I like everyone to be vaccinated? Absolutely. Um, is it, is it uh, as you know, in America, no simple system right now from federal to state, uh, everyone is making their own decisions. Um, and, um, and it's, you know, as you know, it started six months ago where we thought everyone was going to have to vaccine passport. Maybe there were going to be some minimum requirements to everyone just kind of dropped Dropped all requirements and and in a in a state to open has opened. So uh, right now we're we're in you know we're following whatever the latest uh, government state mandate is, um, and also as you know many I work for the artists and many of them have some some have different opinions on what they want or don't want in terms of vaccine requirements. Um, so we've been we're open up now. We don't think that uh, the liability is is going to be a factor. Uh, in, in the big picture, uh, it's very, very, you know, everyone's vaccinated. Everyone has the opportunity to get vaccinated. Everyone, no one's forced to go to a concert. Um, all, all of those things that happen uh, at that concert are well, well disclosed. So we don't think right now that there's any, not any, we don't think there's large liability issues overall. Okay. Who decides if it's vaccinated only show the artist or live nation or the building? pretty much the states right now. So as you know, it's Florida, Texas, most states, you can't demand vaccine requirements. Um, so other than right now, New York and California, uh, those are the only two states who are still some regulations over 5,000 seats in terms of vaccine. Every other state is pretty much uh, open for business, not requiring passports or not requiring vaccines for, for large events. So we're following whatever the state regulation is, is what we've been following. Okay. Now talking about your, uh, shed shows that played, how was attendance? Uh, last weekend was great. We were, uh, you know, we, we really saw after July 4th, any of the shed stuff that wasn't popping on the on sale really got a big kick after July 4th. We assume after everyone either saw it on TV or felt they were opened up and saw the world opening up, 
that seemed to be kind of the next level of validation for customers saying this is real. The show's happening. Um, buy a ticket. So last weekend we had a record uh, kind of weekend, and um, we're seeing every day now the raps are doing better and better on the amphitheater shows. That were some of them were stalled, and I think that's a lot of confusion in the marketplace. And customers weren't sure: is it going to happen? Not? Do I have to be vaccinated? Don't? So I think some of that confusion has. Uh, slowly lifted as these shows are actually playing now, and people believe that they're they're we are open for business. And what is the future of the shed? Certainly, when you took over and you inherited the buildings, a lot of them, a lot of people felt that many of them were built on the cheap and they were tired. Where are we at with the sheds? You know, they, they continue to be an incredible good experience. I mean, they're they're not a billion dollar indoor arena like the uh, the, the latest. Uh, San Francisco arena by far, but they are a beautiful place for 18,000 people to sit outside under the stars and uh, drink a beer and um, smoke a joint if they want and, and watch a show. So we still see the the vitality of the amphitheater has not waned at all. We've had record years uh, coming out of 19. Um, so we're still, you know, we, we still believe our 50 amphitheaters are real vibrant. We did a lot of work really where we had to do the real work, Bob, was the programming of them. We had to make sure that they weren't just old classic rock. Um, so I don't know, five, six years ago, we made sure we really, you know, went after a younger artist, pop artist, hip hop artist, made sure we expanded the, 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 the portfolio and that was successful. The business has been strong and, 18 and 19 uh, were record years, and we assume 22 will be a record year. So um, they, they continue to be a strong piece of our business um, overall. And we're, still, and, and, we're still, and we're still opening them. I mean, we like developing them. They're, they're, they're good businesses. Okay. Are those booked nationally or locally? Uh, about 70% national, 30% local on the amphitheaters. And then what about Live Nation in general? When is something booked nationally and when is something booked locally? Well, we have, if you do macro numbers, we did about 30,000 shows in 40 countries in 2019. If you just did a national versus local, you would have, out of those 30,000 shows, you'd only have six or 7,000 toured shows and about 25,000 local booked. So it is still a local business globally. Uh, you know, the Milan, the Italy's, the Spain's, the Australia's, there's still a, the majority of that business is still a, a local booked business. The tours we do uh, on the national level, we would do, you know, we would only do, uh, uh, we only do a, a few global tours a year. We do a lot of US tours a year. But it's still a local business, a national business, and, a, and then last, a global business, all moving towards national and global. In five years from now and 10 years from now, you and I will talk. Those numbers will keep moving to central uh, as artists are now, especially younger managers, look at the tour as something that they would want to lock in on a national and global basis as a partner. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that movement. Okay. Tell me about the revenue streams. How many revenue streams do you have at Live Nation? What's the great line that one of the investors used? We're like a, a river of nickels. Um, you, know, you have, have a lot. But I mean, generally, you're, you know, the business model is you, we spend $6 billion a year at midnight for those 30,000 shows. Those shows put 100 million people through our 
through the venues. Um, so once at that core six billion, that return is the is the low margin piece. Artists are making most of that money, um, and then our job is to monetize the hundred million people that walk through the door. So you have advertising is a big business for us. Sponsorship advertising, um, that's a huge a big business for us. You have uh, the second biggest is just all of the ancillary revenue, whether it's the food, the beverage, the parking, the rebates. When we put shows in, um, in, in arenas, we got a rebate system if we put so many shows in a year. So putting shows in, you're getting paid either in your building or someone else's. Um, and, and then three would be our service fees uh, at Ticketmaster would be our, 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 our third revenue stream. So those are the, those are the three big pieces. And how do they split up in terms of, let's call it net? Uh, in terms of those three streams, what they contribute? Yes. Uh, they're almost, let's, you could almost call them 33% each in a macro level. They're all, they're all equally important. Okay, okay. Just a 33% for sponsorship, 33% for ticket for the actual show, and the other 33% we would call Ticketmaster? Yeah, I'd say 33% Ticketmaster, 33% uh, on-site ancillary revenue, okay, and thirty-three advertising. Very small, very small percent at the door. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What was the status of sponsorship when you took over 15 years ago? And what is it today? And what does it look like? And what are the opportunities? <clears throat> it's a great line. You know, I... I looked at sponsorship. Um, I mean, listen. I looked at Live Nation at the time. We were sponsorship was a uh, you know a, a, a banner at a, at an amphitheater. It was a it was a you know I think one of the things we did right at Live Nation is we we took a lot of things away from the promoter in a positive sense, right? The promoter shouldn't be worrying about sponsorship and venue management and websites. He's a, he books and market shows. So when we put uh, Russell and built a sponsorship division. Um, I think that's that's by far been our biggest growth because today, you know, it is servicing CMO, CEO relationships. It's a we have an incredible ad network that we sell across our platform. We've got a measurement system to sell to to, to validate the sponsorship on site, off site. Um, we have an incredible on site uh, distribution system where you can talk to and target customers and. And, um, and, and you know, use segmentation to, to look, use our data to really narrow down exactly. So a very professionalized business versus banners. I mean, our job is ultimately we're trying to sell an audience to a brand. And the more you know about the audience and the more you can convince them that you can target that audience and measure it, the better you're going to do in advertising. So we look at our business as a hundred million audience. It's a huge audience. Advertisers, while they spend a lot of money on TV and digital, that's a different world. They're always looking to say, well, how do I touch customers directly, whether it's through music, sports, um, events? Um, and if we can be the leader by saying, listen, we not, not only want to uh, um, be your partner, but we know 19 to 24-year-old, this demo that knows this, um, that is, appeals to this target, and we can reach them on Thursdays, at scale, we can help you sell a Volvo. I mean, the more targeted and the more precise our data is, the better our business is with the with the brand. So that would be the if you want to simplify it, that's the that's the core of why we're, we we do so well in that space. Is we have a very smart data team, a very smart segmentation team, and we're selling the audience, not the artist. So we can sell you enough scale to um, to to advertise on our platform, whether it's on site, whether it's through a digital, through a email touch. Through our app, through a, through their app, through an event, you know, there's a host of ways we can reach those hundred million people for you. Uh, but most importantly, advertising is: Do you know your customer? Can you tell us who your customer is? And can we measure and monitor if we're if we're really reaching them with success? Um, so that's our ongoing work and 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 advancement in in that in that business. Okay, forty years ago, this started with the Rolling Stones and Joe Vaughn. What did Joe Vaughn got? They got their name on the actual ticket. Then we had a lot of money coming into sponsorship. And then uh, Madison Avenue pulled back and said, we're not sure we're getting value for our money. If you have a car company, you have a deep pocket potential sponsor. What is the, what are you selling them that really works? What works today? You know, uh, generally a sponsor is going to come to us or a brand's going to come to us and say, I, I have a, 
I need to reach a target. They know who they want to reach, obviously. So when a brand comes to us and says, you know, we really are having a tough time reaching, you know, 40 to 55-year-old boomers who we think want to buy the Audi car because they're, you know, this is our target. Can you reach them? That's the how it would start, right? Our job then is to say, well, actually, let us show you average customer that goes to the Grateful Dead, or you know, we can give you a whole bunch of shows. We have 16.1 million 40 to 55-year-old customers that are showing up at our events in our database. We could reach them. You want now, so that's the first piece. Convince them that we have a big enough audience that they care about that seems relevant to them. Now, two is then let's develop a program that can hit those 16 million customers that's, that's good for you and the brand. And that's where, whether it's a, as lame as putting the car on site, the simplest idea to, we're going to email all of those customers, we're going to offer them every time you come in for a free demo at the Audi dealer, you're going to get a first access to a concert ticket, you're going to get a access to a show, you're going to get a free ticket. There's a hundred different programs you're going to create. The real magic in what we do is, We've got a great team in New York, customer uh, uh, under Darren Wolf, who is creating these programs to meet that brand's need. So it's every brand's going to be slightly different. They're all got some idea reaching customers in the music space on site uh, in a live environment. And then they want to create some branded program for it. And that's what we're, we're, we're best at doing for them. Needless to say, big stars, certainly superstars, they say the tour is sponsored by X company. Do they bring that to you or do you sometimes bring that sponsor to them? How does that work? I would, th- that would be separate. And you're right. We're, we're, what you're referring to earlier was every brand manager or CMO probably got burnt by doing a artist sponsorship, a tour deal, probably didn't get the value they wanted because it's hard to do a tour deal and one tour um, and put some signs up in the, in the boardwalk and signs in the, uh, in, the, in the VIP gallery and do some meet and greets and think that's a lot of value. That's not, you know, not reaching a lot of customers. So you saw brand, brands kind of went two ways. They either went really deep with an artist and did a real image program where they really got, you know, Adidas and Beyonce, where they really integrated the artist into their brand and um, and those are you know very deep relationships and 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 let's call those um, you know those go artist direct. We don't have anything to do with those. The 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 artist and the brand come together and a bigger and a bigger deal and and hopefully that works for them. If the brand wants to be in the live business, they probably have ended up coming to uh, to Live Nation uh, or a promoter and said, you know what, I don't want one event. I want scale. So that's why we did a good job over these last few years of we don't sell the artist tour. We sell the fact that we have 100 million people coming to us, to our audience. We're the, you know, let's call it the NFL. We have a large audience. So we can deliver your message multiple times to a large audience base. And that's the only way, you know, you, you tend to win in advertising is large reach with good impact and direct messaging. So we end up never selling one tour. That's probably not going to be efficient. We're going to sell you a summer, a six-month program, a two-month, a five-year program. We're going to sell you a lot of customers over time that your program can uh, touch and, and, and deliver against. That's where really we've turned it from a one-off business to a credible sales channel that, that brands say, okay, I can, I can use Live Nation. I can put an advertising program together. 
and I'm going to reach uh, a large audience base over the summer. That's an efficient buy for me. Um, and I'll add that to my marketing mix. Okay. This suddenly drifts into ticketing because certainly for the big acts, they have deals with Amex or maybe city where people can get tickets. Card members can get tickets early. Now this of course involves Ticketmaster. Let's say it's a live nation show. How does this all work out? Yeah, I think for the last 10 years, I think American Express, God bless them, they created that program called Front of the Line. I give them full credit because it's one of the few programs that probably has lived this long. Now, it's been replicated by most credit card companies. um, And I think every credit card company probably has some relationship with some sports team and or promoter. Um, And I think the access to tickets is probably the biggest value a customer wants, right? The hardest thing to do is to get a great ticket to a show because there's such big demand and limited supply. So pre-sales became a big um, item for brands that were willing to pay uh, spots, willing to pay promoters, artists, venues for access to tickets uh, for their fan base in in exchange for a sponsorship check. So uh, we've all participated in it. It's a good revenue stream Um, for us. Live Nation has it for some of our shows. Sometimes artists have it directly, promoters, festivals, sports teams. So pre-sales has been a real defined category of sponsorship, if you want to call it. Um, Started by American Express and now used by most brands as a value to the sponsorship package. Okay, dirty little secret of the business is that on the on-sale, it could be a 20,000-seat arena, and on the on-sale date, Fewer than a thousand tickets are ultimately available. Then, who decides on all the varying levels of pre-sale? Why does that exist? Why are we in this world? Yeah, I wouldn't say that's the case anymore. That that model's flushed out over the years. You don't have any more of these. Um, uh, not anymore, but the no comp tour is pretty much standard now. If you're running a big tour and you're the tour accountant, you ain't giving record label sponsor. You're not giving anyone anything for free. Um, so that's changed over the last five, six years, if you want to call it. Most tours now are a no comp tour, uh, meaning unless I'm proving to that artist that I'm taking tickets and delivering them to a sponsor or media property and getting something in return, uh, they're not getting tickets anymore. And if the label needs them, the label's buying them. So I would say that that isn't really the challenge anymore. Uh, most of the tickets that are going to go on sale at 10 o'clock, a very small, I'm, you know, what would, would be a percent? Small percent is held for, um, for I- I anything other than, now, if there's a sponsor involved, maybe they've done a big sponsorship deal. Maybe there's a thousand tickets 2,000 tickets, 10, 20%, but there wouldn't be, uh, there would be most most shows, most tickets, large majority are going to be available uh, on on pre-sale slash on sale. Okay, let me, yeah, you answered a point. I, I was actually more interested, less than the no comp. I'm glad you covered that. But with many acts, there are different levels of pre-sale, such when the general public gets a bite most of the tickets have already been sold. I'm not talking about any nefarious yeah. activity, but yeah, yeah. there's the credit card, there's the fan club. How does that come about and what's the status of that today? 
But again, let's not use one brush to paint the business, right? There's, you know, this this business always gets talked about at the time. There's there's 10 artists that can make the, the rules different than there's the rest of us, right? So most shows, you I look at my pre-sales uh, on most tours, you know, there's very small amount of states that a pre-sale will go real clean and sell four or 5,000 tickets on a pre-sale before the on-sale on the Saturday. You know, that's, that's, that's the 1% rule. Most of the time, a pre-sale, if you do a pre-sale and you do 1,000 tickets or 2,000 tickets, you're happy. Um, and you'll, you're, you'll gladly exchange some of that direct marketing that that brand used to help you sell some tickets. I mean, Bob, you know this. Most shows don't sell out. 99% of shows don't sell out. So most of the time, our challenge isn't that we sold out and don't have tickets. Most of the time is, is it's not sold. We don't have a ton of marketing and concert promotion, as you know. This is, you know, in a big world of all the marketing messages out there, um, we have a very small marketing budget per show, per tour, in retrospect to the amount of noise in the marketplace. So we're always going to find and look for any trick, sponsor, pre-sale, media. We're probably going to resort to many tricks to try to get a little bit of news or a little bit of noise around a on-sale or a pre-sale, um, just because it's, it's, it's so tough to break clutter on, you know, when you're, forget if you're, you know, Taylor Swift or, you know, the, the, the Beyonce's of the world, the, the rest of the businesses, God, I'm going on sale on Saturday. There's seven others going on sale. Uh, I got a $30,000 budget per city. Um, I got 40000 to spend in Los Angeles, which buys you, you know, what? Nothing. So you're trying to break a little clutter on a Saturday morning. So you'll take that pre-sale when, you, when, when a commerce or a credit card is going to talk direct to their probably uh, targeted fan that wants to buy a, a, a ticket. Uh, so I would say to you, macro, I don't believe pre-sales are the problem with the customer. Um, you know, we can get into scalpers at some point, but the real problem on a Saturday at 10 isn't that the tickets are sold to pre-sales. The problem at 10 o'clock is the tickets are sold uh, because the secondary market's very vibrant. Okay. What actually works instead of, in terms of promoting a show? I mean, print, TV, Facebook, online. Yeah, it's been um, two, two changes. Ultimately, the... Um, None of the the mainline advertising tends to work anymore. You know, there's it's a direct business now. So the the best way to sell a ticket is to use the artist socials. They have they are direct to consumer brands now, as you know. So you want to find a fan, go on their Instagram, and they probably got twenty million followers, or um, however many. Some of them have a hundred million. So if you're going to sell a fan a ticket, probably start with their own their their brands, their social networks. Uh, so if you go and look at our database, Live Nation's database of ticket buyers, and the and the artist database, those are probably your two best places you're going to start. If I advertise against that, those two databases, you're probably going to find out most of your customers are there. Uh, it, second, then, you're right. We do spend a lot on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, those, those, are, those are the best kind of response tools for an event. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the, the two places to spend digital online and start with the digital online uh, uh, on the artist's main network. And then anyone else's database like Live Nations or probably AEGs or American Express, whoever has a large customer database of ticket purchase 
purchasers um, that are like-minded or, or past buyers. So all online, all digital now. All Anything radio, print, TV we do is probably just vanity. It's not probably going to convert. It's too wide. We can go targeted now and, and reach. You, know, you only have to find 13 or 14,000 fans in Los Angeles to fill a Staples Center. So you don't need a billboard on Sunset. The, you know, when you're trying to find 13,000 people in a 10 million population, you don't actually want to shoot a shotgun. You want to, you, want to, you want to be very targeted. You want to find those fans that went before, fans that look like they want to go, um, or existing fans. So more digital we spend, the more targeted we spend, the more efficient it is. Okay, you mentioned the scalpers, you mentioned the on-sale time, the bots, etc. A, what is the status of that? And B, will they pretty much buy anything or only the hot tours? Uh, let me let me just answer one. Let me just say one thing before we jump to it. You know, one of the things we see in concerts, though, I would say to you is I don't think we have an awareness program problem. Uh, it, most of the time, the artist, uh, that, and as much as people think that's an awareness problem, it, you, you only go to one or two shows a year. I've said this before. I'm going to forget, you know, yes, if you're 19 to 24, you're going to go to six or seven. But generally, this is not a this isn't like you're in the supermarket and you see something at the checkout aisle and you buy it. Going to a show is a committed game. You have to find four other people that even like the band. You got to commit in the head. You got to find a babysitter. Or you got to go. It's a, it's a mini travel experience. So going to a show is that we, uh, we've done our research is about a two week, two week process before you buy the ticket. So it's a committed game. So it's not as if you're, you're, um, you know, you just found out about it and, uh, and, and I, I decided to go. I say that in that most of our research will tell you the reason I don't go isn't because I didn't know about the show. Most of the time, it's probably going to be about pricing. So I always remind my team, we don't have an awareness problem. We have a pricing problem. So I may know about the show, but you know what? Do I want to go again? I've been twice. I've seen the band. The minute we send them a price offer, we see big, big action. And that's typical of, you know, travel, hotels, any of these kind of businesses where, you know, it's a depreciating asset. Generally, you can motivate people by price. So you see a lot of that happening or you'll, you, that's best, the best way to move a ticket probably is because we, we overpriced it. Um, and, um, and that's, that's usually the best way to kind of kick ticket sales versus pounding some more advertising on a, uh, on an Instagram ad. Um, not a, so, so that's just a side note is it's not only just, do I know about the tour, but can I afford to go to the tour this time? Maybe, you know, there's some things are price resistant, but, um, um, sometimes, uh, that, that tends to be our best lever is promotion. Um, so, so, uh, scalping you, 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 uh, you know, it's ironic, right? We, we are the only product in the world that's worth, worth more the second it's sold. It's, that kind of goes against business sense. Um, maybe sneakers are becoming that now. But generally, the way business works is you try to match market pricing to supply, right? If you and I owned a company and, the, and we found out that it sold out every second that we put it on sale, we'd probably say we should in, increase the price. Um, and that's how the traditional businesses all work. They find that price resistance sweet spot where there's enough demand um, to meet the need, but it's priced properly. So we're in this tough industry where the artist is an incredible brand manager playing long. 
And he smartly doesn't want to just take that one show and price it to perfection. He wants to price it to what he thinks is affordable and right for the fan um, for the long term. So it does create, though, a big challenge because anytime you have an eight to ten billion dollar industry called secondary, um, it's going to be get it's going to get very professionalized. It's a real business and it's legal in America um, and endorsed. So it's not it's not the hideaway business anymore. It's not a bad business. It's a real business. It's called you know reselling tickets and it's been legitimized and um, so it's it's professionalized and it's real as the reality. Um, some countries around the world have, you know, put caps on it and you can only resell a ticket for 10% and 15 and they've reacted differently. And I, I kind of like some of that thinking, but the reality in America is the sports business legitimized scalping, uh, long before the, before us, meaning the, the music business. So it's professionalized the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, every team has its own exchange, you saw the Dodgers a couple of years ago did an RFP for their secondary tickets, got like 76 million. So the biggest question I always get from artists is, why are all my tickets on the secondary? Well, the reality is that venue you're playing in probably has a sports team and probably has a secondary deal. And, you know, most sports teams don't sell out on a Monday night for every hot hockey team or basketball or baseball you, if you owned a team, you probably got some sweets and a bunch of Tuesday nights not selling out. So you've done a secondary deal with somebody. And as part of that deal, you've probably given them a suite or access to um, good seats when the concerts come to that venue too. Um, so we're already starting. Every show is starting with probably season tickets or some level of tickets sold or packaged in a sports secondary deal uh, in that venue. So you're, you've started already with you know, the, the artist probably has, or the, some of those seats are already been, been bought up or, or purchased. Um, and they're, they're incredible price, um, uh, price managers. They know how to buy a lot of inventory. They, they lose on some and make, a, make on the others and are very good at, uh, at figuring out the whole macro version of what to buy from Saturday night basketball to baseball to concert seats. So very professionalized, very software-driven, data-driven a lot of these companies. So this is this is a real business, and I, and I I only say that because you know sometimes in the space we get a lot of a lot of lot of talk about it, and 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 until we recognize it's a real legitimate industry, StubHub, SeatGeek, Vivid, these are professional companies, public companies now. Um, the reselling of a ticket has been a you know until unless someone wants to wake up and do some legislation or or try to uh, do something different, it's a legitimate business. Um, and it's part of the system. I think I try to convince artists every now and then that it's not the boogeyman because it's real. It, it, it does live. It is existence. So we should think about it. Now, if you want to solve it, best way to do is to price your product differently. But if you don't price your product differently, you're probably going to be, um, at some point, there's no way around it. The secondary market will exist. Okay, but let's talk about the on-sale availability uh, no one knows, well, you might know the exact numbers of tickets that go to spot, you are acquired via bots and go to scalpers as opposed to regular customers. Forget the reselling of that ticket. What percentage on a sellout show end up in the hands of the secondary market essentially from the on sale date? Well, again, I, I don't want to paint one picture because again, uh, uh, you know, 
90% of shows aren't selling out and don't have a hot on sale. So I don't want to paint one number and say, oh, you know, every concert goes. But you are, you know, on the ones that get the press, the 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 BTSs of the world, the ones where the where the family members trying to buy that ticket for their their their, their daughter or son, the hot ticket, you're gonna, you know, we're gonna I, I looked at a number, you know, we've, we've stopped over 30 billion bots over the last while. I mean, Saturday morning on sale bots trying to steal tickets or grab tickets um, is, a, is the biggest challenge in our space. So when you hit a hot on sale um, on a marketplace on a Saturday morning, you know, you're, you're going to get a high percentage of those tickets um, are going to be uh, acquired by bots slash scalpers. Uh, at 10, 10, between 10 and 10.05, right? We're always living that. By 10.05, somebody's mad that they think Ticketmaster must have given tickets to the scalper because there's 10 pages of bots of us, pages on Google saying they got tickets available. But they're, they're fast and they can eat up ticket inventory very, very fast with uh, the computerized bots. So it's a big problem. 10 o'clock or on sales in general uh, being, uh, being scooped up by, by bots um, is, a, is a big part of the what makes the experience of 10 buying a ticket uh, not great for a fan. They're, they're confused on why it's sold out in a minute and why there's pages of self-gulpers with tickets available. And what are the strategies at your company to combat that? Well, we're, you know, as I remind people, Ticketmaster would spend the most of anybody. There's, there's, we're about the only one that's spending any money, right? It, it, no one else is waking up trying to stop a secondary buy on at 10 o'clock. Um, so, so Ticketmaster has, you know, huge security department. We're going to spend tens and tens of millions a year on software and bots and try to find bad actors. And is that Bob Leffitt's trying to buy a ticket or is it an IP? But, you know, this is, it's an arms race. These are professional businesses. This isn't like, you know, a, a, an easy IP to trace and, and stop it. So we do our best to try to deliver a, a, an on-sale that a fan has a shot at buying a ticket at the regular price. But the reality is, you know, the, biz, the, the, the business, there's no one else out there spending a dollar trying to stop a bot at 10 o'clock. StubHub, SeatGeek, um, Access Tickets, the sports. I mean, there's no one else spending a dollar trying to stop an on-sale. Um, so we're, we are, as big as Ticketmaster is, it's still in a $10 billion uh, arms race. It's a tough business to be able to uh, develop any, any stoppage against 10 o'clock on-sale. Uh, at that level, uh, when when there's that much money involved. Okay, let's just look at the uh, take the long view, as you mentioned earlier. I remember 40 years ago, cable TV. If you wanted to get a channel for free, you could go to the actual cable. They put these filters on. You remove the filter, you got the pay channel for free. Then they digitized everything. There was no theft. Needless to say. You know, we're going to t- move from hard tickets to tickets on the device. In this pro- progress, is there a way that's going to actually hurt the bots and hurt the scalpers? You know, we're we're digitizing our ticket the last couple of years, and you're right. When you move from a PDF to a digital ticket, you, in theory, can can imply some control. Um. But in America, um, you know, there's no political will to put any rules in place to limit um, those 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 uh, those th- those controls. 
So we have a digital ticket. We could, in theory, say that you bought a ticket to the Jimmy Buffett show. You can't resell it, or you can only resell it with a 10% uplift. Um, but if we try to impose any kind of controls on that, you know, scalpers and others are pretty good at lobbyists and getting someone cranked up that there's a free marketplace and who owns that ticket and I should be able to do whatever I want with that ticket and controls by anyone aren't allowed. So we don't see the, um, the marketplace looking to try to control the sale of the ticket. That's our challenge. We, we believe that there could be controls. You could do it tomorrow. Um, but there isn't, the, there, there isn't the political appetite, both in sports, most artists want a clean on sale at 10 o'clock is a reality. Um, so we don't see, we don't see it as a way to, you know, uh, we don't see it as, as something that will come into effect and make a difference. We think that the market, um, StubHub and others have, have done a good job of convincing everyone in, in Congress and otherwise that a ticket should be freely traded. I mean, you look, you got Bill Pascal, look at his boss act. He's, he actually wants, Irony is he's doing a, uh, his, his boss act is about making sure that the scalper has free controlled access to every ticket that I Ticketmaster and others when you put a ticket on sale should make our platform freely um, available that if you buy it on any secondary site that I can walk in the building and have free access and free uh, free distribution and control so that that shows you where the where the marketplace is um, so we we believe that. Listen, the digital ticket's good for Live Nation and Ticketmaster from a, from a business perspective because going back to my earlier uh, story about sponsorship, the more I know who Bob Luffitz is that walked in the building, that's a big advantage to me just from doing a better job of my marketing, talking to you next time, upselling you. So for me, it's just good to turn a PDF into a piece of data and the better I can use that data to sell more tickets, upsell and have a better relationship with the customer, it's good for us. Turning those 100 million people that walk in the door from a PDF into an actual segmented digital human file is much better for our business. I don't think, though, we're going to be successful imposing restrictions on the, on the business and the distribution of that ticket or the transferability of that ticket. Uh, I don't think there's the political will to, uh, to, to limit any of it. Part of what we got into... Um, with some of these senators was just, you know, our ticket, and is it freely transferable? And a lot of the, the, um, of the stuff you, you, you read about was about was, were we going to limit the distribution of our ticket? Were we going to make you buy a ticket at Ticketmaster as a digital ticket? And the only way you could resell it was at the Ticketmaster resale. Um, and that's, that was kind of the, the big basis of a closed platform that the scalpers and others had ex- excited some of the Congress about. Uh, we had never planned on doing that. We don't believe in a closed platform. Uh, that market is long sailed. We're, 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 I've got an open platform to date. Um, but that shows you that that's kind of the, 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 uh, the intent of the lobbyists and what their concerns were, that, that anyone would imply any kind of control or um, rules on the ticket. Prior to the shutdown, there was a lot of noise at your company about the verified fan. What's the status of that now? And was it effective? You know, I think we, I think prior, you know, the good news is the shutdown gave us a lot of time to rethink uh, what is it we want to get done uh, in our ticketing strategy. 
Um, and I think we, I think we were fighting the fight with some band-aids that probably weren't effective enough overall to make a difference. Um, so I think we've learned that verified fan is another tool in the toolbox. Is it a good idea? Yes. It's a great idea, Bob, that if I'm going to go on sale, that I can get verified fans registered in advance. So I at least have a shot on the on sale of saying Bob Laffis is registered and now we can sell you a ticket on Friday. It's a great system to take a little bit of load off the on sale and distribute it through the week prior to. So it's a good tool. Some bands, as you know, are very obsessed with, I want to do everything I can to make sure the fan buys my ticket and no one else does. And at Ticketmaster, we got to have those tools and, um, and we'll have them. I would just say to you, I think we're, we're probably less obsessed with trying to roll out verified fan as we are at rolling out digital ticketing, which is more important overall in that with the more we get the ticket digitized, uh, the better the experience is for everybody and the better it is for our overall business. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, let's talk about pricing. Pricing is very different than it used to be. Used to, if you had an expensive ticket, let's just, you know, use round numbers. If the best seats were $200, the seats in the rafters were 100 What do we know? 
The seats in the rafters have, go, rafters have gone down to 50 in many cases, and the seats up front have gone to 500 with what is conventionally known as platinum. So what is the, th- you know, this is always a game other than the stones who have their own style. Uh, it's always a game of pricing. What is, you know, and Ticketmaster and Live Nation are the experts because they see this every day, whereas an act only goes on tour maybe once every other year. What do you tell acts in terms of pricing these days? Well, two things. Going back to our first point, you know, there's still billions of dollars in secondary business out there. So we know we're not pricing the house right. So we have opportunity to at least gap to get some of that front of the house economics for the artist. And again, going back to what we said, 90% of the shows I'm dealing with in life are not selling out. So I don't ever have a problem selling the front part of the house. I do have a problem selling the back part. Go to my other point on why is the problem? Pricing, not awareness. So I'm always going to convince an artist to re- redistribute the pricing and how low can we get the back end of the house and probably subsidize the back end of the house from the front of, front of the house. So if we can get that perfect sellout, we want to make sure that we have you know affordable seats in the back last row that sell out. And if you got to take $25 off the back row ticket, I'd rather you add it to the front row to still get the same gross, but but price it properly um, with the back end. So artists, you know, listen, we're, we were a business that was very, very rudimentary for years, as you know. We had three scalings. It was, you know, 179 and 49 and 40 dates were the same, whether it was a Friday in New York or a Tuesday in Pittsburgh. So, you know, I would say in general, we've, We've been talking to artists for the last five years just about nobody prices their product that way anymore. You know, you got to price to the market. You know, the, 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 the aisle seat is worth more than the middle seat. Friday night's worth more than Monday night. New York's going to be more expensive than Pittsburgh. So I would say that we have, you know, worked hard on a pricing model overall to say, what's the best way to price your tour, depending on what city, what date? Is it three prices or is there five or six price points? that are better for the house. Um, so yeah, I, I, every year the artists are getting better. Uh, we're getting better at pricing the house to sell it out, uh, maximize the gross, take a little bit of that secondary money off the table that, uh, that they weren't participating in, but still find that fine line where they're still accessible enough that it sells through. And that's been the kind of the science and art over the last five years and a lot of why the grosses have continually go up and, Grosses will go up for the next, you know, five, six years because we're still dramatically underpriced uh, across the board. Now, speaking of that, what we know is the hardcore fans will pay the most, whether it be a platinum ticket or whether it be a ticket that's purchased on a secondary market. They'll pay $450 to sit in the first 15 rows and they're thrilled. Okay, yes. Some New York City, Los Angeles shows, you have fat cats who just want to be there. But generally speaking, that is not the case in every market. So, these are high-demand items. Will we ever get to the point where acts will realize that maybe it's just a perception from the 70s and reality we should price the tickets at what their value truly is? Oh, yeah. that That's going to happen. I, I think you're going to see the... You know, like you said, we do a bad job on PR as an industry because it's a very, a concert ticket is still very affordable overall. If you go look at average ticket prices 
forget the high ones, just average for sports, concerts, still affordable. And you are right. There is somehow the NBA gets gets to write press releases about the $100,000 front row as a positive. Um, and this business, if Bruce charges more than 150, you know, it's, it's, it's a story. So you're right. I, I think that slowly the artist of today, the next generation artist is going to look at the tour and realize that their fans, that they want to sell directly to their fans, that some fans will spend more for that experience and they're better off having that experience and taking that dollar into their gross than someone else. Um, and, 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 I, and compared to other things, it's still wildly affordable. I mean, I took my boys to Disney World. I mean, geez, uh, that, that's not a cheap day. Um, so most of the other things that are this valuable in life, you know, you don't go to 80 concerts a year like sports teams. There's, you know, that band comes to town maybe, what, once every three years to Los Angeles? That's a high demand product. That's an incredible experience. You can see it once every three years. That's going to be worth a lot, a lot more than, you know, 80 games a year for a sports team that you can see every year. So, yeah, we, we're still completely underpriced. Uh, I think this next generation will, will come to reconcile that they don't have to be ashamed of how spectacular that experience on stage is. They're spending a fortune, these artists, uh, on the production now. You I mean 50, 40, 70 trucks at stadiums. They're putting these incredible shows on. So um, I think that pricing will start to uh, reflect the demand over time. It's the best way to uh, address the market. Well, let's talk about the Stones and Flex pricing. That's not your company. That's Concerts West. But essentially, there's no scalping because they change the price based on demand. And conventionally, you can get a ticket day of. Is that the future? Or is that really only for the Stones? Well, I listen, I do give, I've always given, you know, I think Mick's just a genius business manager. We did this, we did the show at the, at the Hollywood Bowl. And I remember it was, uh, I don't know, I'm going to get the exact math wrong, but it might've been a 40 year anniversary. And he had charged $6 40 years ago and it was 600 this time. And he said, you know, the, the, uh, the, the set list hasn't changed, just the price. So I, I think, uh, He's done a fabulous job from day one of being about the business and and uh, and being that's been accepted as part of his brand. So, I, th- I think the Stones are an incredible success story. Um, but you're right; it's going to take more artists like that that are going to say, "I have a product uh, that should be dynamically priced and should match demand." And we're seeing that from I would say when you talk to new younger managers of today thinking about touring their thing. They they come at it in, in a in a more fresh way that way on why why am I not going to charge the right price why is scalpers why wouldn't I price a house differently so I think there's a there'll be a new generation of pricing uh, that comes up uh, through through the next ten years. Okay, let's switch to the fees. You and me both know the inside the history of the fees, whatever, but the public really can't get it. Can you explain how Ticketmaster doesn't get the entire fee? Yeah, I, I mean, again, the, the fee was part of the original um, price um, that Fred Rosen, when he started Ticketmaster, you know, uh, to have an exclusive ticketing service in your building, um, you you charged a service fee to execute the the business, and you know, it started at one or two dollars and. 
Fred would tell you the story every year when he went to renew, that venue would say, great, just add another dollar, add another dollar. And, um, and it got added for many years. Um, and it used to be, you know, $6, $7, $8, and it was split probably 50-50 back in the day, Ticketmaster and the venue. Um, and then ultimately, venues continued to, uh, to uh, kind of get hooked on the drug of the service fee. And ultimately, you know, today you look at service fees in venues, um, it does become a very important part of a P&L um, in that venue. And it's the high margin piece of the business as a revenue stream um, that you, you know, you're, you're used to having and part of financing your building and your operations. As talent costs or in sports, sports business uh, athletes or however their bills have gone up. So, it has become a very uh, lucrative uh, piece of business for venues. Now, you're right. In a typical venue, uh, in a sports venue, a sports ticket, uh, the team and the venue are probably getting 90% of the service fee. So if it's a $30, $40 service fee, um, they're going to get 90% of it. In a concert ticket, in a typical big arena show, um, Ticketmaster is going to get same thing. We're going to get two bucks, t- three bucks out of that forty or forty-five dollars service fee. The rest would go to the venue. Um, so it's you're right. We we have a um, you know a challenge where the Ticketmaster takes the punch in the head for the no tickets available at ten a.m. and a thirty-five dollars service fee. Two things we really have no control over. One, we're not making thirty-five, and two, we we can't control that the Market gets bought up by secondary business because of underpriced industry. So you're right; it's a tough uh, it's a tough PR hit to handle, um, and and um, and it's kind of been part of now a historic revenue stream uh, that that uh, that seems to be uh, here to stay as 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 venues and sports and music uh, costs have risen. So, what percentage of Ticketmaster's ticket sales and or revenue are Concerts as opposed to sports and other verticals. Um, what would be the off? You know, roughly, Ticketmaster sold about five hundred million tickets last year globally. Um, sports would be sports would be sixty seventy percent of that business from a sales perspective. Um. So yeah, that's about the split. I mean, I'm gonna we do a ton of season tickets involved where we make no fees. Um, so those are kind of called no fee, no tickets. But about sixty or seventy percent of the business would be sports in general. Uh, but we make more money on our cons- on the concert business than the sports business um, because obviously Live Nation happens to be a ticket uh, a concert provider or a concert venue where we're uh, where we're, we're servicing ourselves. Okay, forgetting making an exclusive deal with a building, why should someone use Ticketmaster as opposed to one of its competitors? Well, if you're, you know, there's, there's, there's almost there's two businesses in ticketing, right? There's the non-sports venue, and then there's the sports venue. There's a, let's call it reserve tickets versus single tickets. If you're in the single ticket business, Eventbrite business festival business. Um, that's not a hard business to solve uh, in terms of software. So 
and they, they all do a great job and we do a good job in it. Ticketmaster has done a great job for many years in servicing sports teams. Sports teams are incredibly high demand. So when you're doing, um, when you're servicing the sports NFL team, NBA team, NHL team, you know, we, we did an audit recently. We'll run over two to 300 different programs, products for all of those teams, reports, um, transferability, season tickets, sports. So the, the biggest success the Ticketmaster has had is if you're going to be, a, if, you're, if you're a big sports team and you have a season ticket base and a single taste base, you need, you need software to service all of that. Uh, Ticketmaster has two great platforms, Artix and Hosts, which service your season tickets as well as your single tickets. All together, manage all of those, transfer those, provide audits for you, sell your tickets for you, ma- um, cancel them, manage your box office, all of the infrastructure needed to be a great enterprise platform for season and um, single tickets. That's a complex business to manage. And every team has 20 different customized things they want it to do. I want it to talk to this. I want it to do this with the sponsor. I want it to do this with the Hall of Famer. So it's a real, it's a real hard model to scale ticketing at the level it is and be absolutely customizable to such level. So that's really where its strength has been. When we launched our own ticketing company, we thought we would be able to do it. And we really realized that there was a hundred, I had an audit company come and look at Live Nation ticketing versus Ticketmaster. And there was like 197 things that Ticketmaster did for the venue that we couldn't even do. So it was all of this years of customization for Broadway, for the venues um, that have made that platform very, very viable. Um, and and um, and useful for the venue. So you have two things that Ticketmaster does better than most people. It's got a highly scalable platform, meaning it can handle billions of bots at 10 a.m. while still customize it to your needs when you say, I'm a, a, a football team that needs you to do this on a Sunday with the church for a benefit for, um, for a, um, an exhibition game. Very, very hard problems to solve at scale. The second thing that it's done really well when we broke the company in two is it still happens to be an incredible big e-commerce marketplace. If you look at uh, putting your, if we're going to service you as the venue, the biggest value you're going to get is we're going to sell your ticket at our marketplace where a majority of customers go to still buy their tickets, where it has the highest, um, you know, the e-commerce scores of ticket sales. So one, we're going to, you know, do two things. We're going to have a great platform that's scalable yet customizable. And two, we're going to have the best marketplace to put that ticket for sale, help you sell that ticket, use our database, sell you more tickets. And we can, we prove over and over, if you leave our platform, odds are your ticket sales will go down just because we happen to have a big audience. Um, so we're, um, we're, we, we've been you know, successful at keeping both of those sp- plates spinning well. Lots of engineers every day customizing our, our main platform and Great e-commerce people thinking about how we keep putting more, uh, fixing our UX, getting to the app, making sure we can sell tickets better than anyone else when it comes to that seat map. And I want a ticket um, to my football game or my my one-off game. So still two great skills and global that have been able to uh, to uh, to lead the pack there. Okay, if Live Nation has 30% of the concert market internationally, 
What percentage does Ticketmaster have domestically and Live Nation associated ticketing platforms around the world have internationally? Well, globally, the ticketing business is still fairly fragmented. So I don't know if we have that number. It would be 10, 15%. It wouldn't be a big number globally because the markets are still fragmented. Um, and in the U.S., again, you know, uh, the, the business of ticketing globally and or ticketing in the U.S., when you add, when you look at the market of ticketing, we do a great job on one segment called arenas and, uh, and, and amphitheaters. But, you know, there's a whole world of ticketing that we don't participate in or don't have a high score, whether it's, you know, all the college businesses that uh, Pacquiolan do, the secondary business now of, sec- of sport, SeatGeeks and Vivids. Okay. Now, you have an act that wants to go on the road. How do you convince them to come to Live Nation as opposed to a competitor? And at the end of the day, does it really just come down to money? Uh, you, you know, it's it's never about the money, but it's always about the money, as they say. Um, <laughs> you know, listen, you, you still have to have the infrastructure to get the job done, right? You, you can you can win anything once. It's it's the repeat business that matters. So, uh, you know, the, the 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 big piece of our business is we have a hundred offices in forty countries. So. You know, think about it. Ultimately, we're a huge distribution company as well as a financing company. So you have to do both things. You have to make sure that you have the best financial incentives to win the business, um, and whether it's a tour or it's local. But ultimately, you got to make sure you can execute the show. Um, you have the best economics for the band, whether they show up in Milan, Pittsburgh, Toronto, or um, um, or Australia. So you know, our our strength has always been. Go global. Uh, a global business is what the artist needs today. Have offices in all the main cities. Have the best marketing staff, production, venue deals, marketing deals, sponsorship deals. Um, and that ends up being, you know, kind of the business. If we can have the best players in most of the markets around the world, we can convince any artist that we can take care of their tour, market it the best, execute it the best, get the best venue rates, get the best production rates, as well as pay the the proper financing deal to uh, to uh, secure the deal. Because of your other revenue streams, do you find if there's a competition, Live Nation, if it chooses to, can always pay more? No, I mean, you know, most most of the, ultimately, you know, the tour, the, the local business is still a, a, a dogfight, as you know. You know, in Denver, you're fighting, you know, your guys versus uh, my, my guys. Everyone's got similar revenue streams. So, tends to be the same, same, no, we don't have any new tricks that the, the others don't have. So we've all got the same revenue streams. And if it's a tour, it's us versus AEG. Um, they've got similar revenue streams. As you know, they own the buildings, they have the sponsorship. So we all have the same revenue streams to, to use to win the tour or the local date. Uh, we just happen to think that, you know, uh, I, I've always believed that it's a local business. And I think that's our competitive advantage. Very, having a hundred offices and thirty thousand staff executing your tour is a is a big investment to make, but it ultimately makes a difference when you're looking at that band and and talking about do you have boots on the ground to uh, to make that happen. Now you also have touring deals. I remember talking to you one day. There was a relatively nascent act with some action, and you made an overall touring deal. 
So how prevalent are those and what's the philosophy behind that? Well, you know, touring deals, let's go, you know, 10, 12 years ago was not, was not the norm. And I think every year you've seen more and more artists look at kind of uh, uh, looking for a partnership with someone, us, AEG. Um, and, um, and I think they become more of the, of the norm. Um, which would make sense because, you know, I, I always remind artists or managers and agents that, you know, the same reason why you have a record deal. You didn't, you didn't sell off your record by, by record store or by city. You probably did a record deal because you want one partner thinking about your business on a longer term basis, on a marketing basis. So I truly believe that if you have a, a tour partner thinking about your tour on a global basis, you might not, you know, make money in, Denver, but you might make uh, make money in Argentina and South America. You're going to make a different investment basis if it's spread over time, and you can play together, and you're going to try to build the pot together. So I think I think an artist today, I think a manager today has a whole new business than he did of the old management system. Right, the old manager had to get you a record deal and a tour deal. The new manager today has got a whole new world to think about on influencers and how he's going to build his brand and what they're going to do with that artist. I think when it comes to touring, I don't think it's that complex in the end. I think he wants to meet with his agent, talk about his tour plans and find a good committed partner that's going to pay market rate with great marketing and support and get that done. I don't think there's a, they are obsessed um, with what exact artist or what promoter in Spain is, is doing the deal. I think they're more obsessed with who's my promoter and I've got to think about that just like I thought about my record partner. I want to play with a partner that's thinking long-term with me. So we've seen that more and more, um, an artist looking for bigger deals, longer-term deals. So what does a tour deal look like and what percentage of your business is that? Or to put it another way, how many of you have? Well, because on a global basis, you know, we, you know, I mentioned earlier we did 30,000 shows. We might have 5,000 of those would be a tour deal. A tour deal could be, 40 dates in America, could be 100 dates globally, could be one-year deal, could be three-year deals, depending if the artist is on cycle or wants a couple cycle deal or a certain amount of shows. So somewhere between you know, one cycle and three cycles may be a tour deal. Okay. What's the future of the agency business? If we look at from the agency side, music representation is a small revenue share of these giant agencies. And certainly when you have the monster acts, do they really need an agent at all? So what's your thought about where that's all going? Well, you know, I think anyone, I think we've all got squeezed in the business, right? Ultimately, the artist has done a, a, a great job of building their business over time. And the manager, the agent, the promoter, everyone ultimately had gotten squeezed over time. Promoter, I don't know, used to be, used to be what, a 50-50, 80-20, 85-15. Manager used to got paid on gross versus net, and the agent's gotten squeezed. So I think we're all in the same business. The middleman ultimately gets squeezed over time if you don't reinvent your business or diversify it. Uh, I, as a promoter, knew that we, wouldn't, we couldn't exist just as a promoter. Uh, 15 years ago, when I was, you know, looked at Live Nation, it was that to me was just one piece of the business. You had to build a much more diversified business model over time to win, which uh, we, we worked on. I think the agents have done the same thing. 
I think whether you're William Morris or CAA, they've all, you know, William Morris, obviously very different with UFC and others, but I think they looked at it as a, a macro business and they've diversified into other businesses to build around it. Um, so they can try to offer value to those artists and clients um, beyond just their, you know, the historic business model. So I think they'll, I think, that, listen, they're great brands at the core, CA, William Morris, Casey now joining. I think the role of an agent uh, is a is a good check and balance for the manager. Um, and I think the agent will continue to evolve their services um, much like the labels have evolved, right? Everyone looked at the labels and all of a sudden they're making money on Peloton that no one predicted. So I, I think the artists are going to make a lot of money. They're direct to consumer brands right now. Every artist wants his own vodka, his tequila, his monetizing his Instagram, his TikTok. There's lots of ways to monetize these artists outside of the tour alone. Uh, the, the, the agents are all looking at how do we how do we add more value to the to the uh, to the to the artist? How do we get them into venture deals together? How do we monetize their privates? How do we monetize um, fairs and festivals? So still a big piece of the business and, and a whole new world for the agents if they keep evolving their skill set. One thing we know is the traditional, let's put it, the traditional major label business is very different from it used to be. Use of major labels controlled most of the marketplace, certainly in the era of physical distribution, and those were the acts that sold the tickets. Now more than ever, if you look at Polestar, you look at Gross's, it could be completely different from the Spotify top 50. So in a music level, what is going on in general? What do you see in the marketplace? Yeah, you know, but I've saw that. That's been consistent for quite a while. I mean, even pop music, the charts were not always reflective of the sale on the venue. So that that's not new to me. Um, we, we've seen that disconnect from disco days onward, uh, it didn't always mean that you could sell tickets. So, um, you know, I, I don't see that as, uh, as anything that affects the business differently. Uh, you know, I, I do think that you look at the business, you know, today and you look at hip hop businesses as, as, you know, let's call that the new rock and roll or the rock and roll of today's generation. That's vibrant and big as ever. Travis Scott, do you name them, are selling out and driving driving venues like the rock and roll of the past. So that's relevant and bigger than ever. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't think the, uh, the charts reflective on the ticket sales is a new disconnect. I think that's been happening for, for a long time. Okay. So what do we know? You're in this business 365 days a year. Certainly new managers, they may only have one act and are wet behind the year. So, what do you say to new managers who have a successful act that's got some action? What lessons do they need to learn? What do they have to wake up to? Well, it's a great, it's a great one. You know, I think they're, you know, that you you see the the change happening in this new era of managers, um, in that they're they're driving their artists probably as celebrities more than artists at times. Um and I do think that, you know, we, we often remind them that even though they may be able to get a vodka line or sell some Instagram ads, uh, longevity means you got to have hits and you got to apprentice yourself on that road and connect. Uh, so I, I would say sometimes, you know, I was with an, a manager 
and we had a tour that wasn't selling well. And I said, so what, what are we going to do? And, um, and he said, well, you know, we're getting paid for privates and we're going to launch a hot sauce because we have a lot of followers. And uh, I thought, wow, now for t- 30 years, Bob, that answer would have been, you know, we're going to get in the art, we're going to get in the studio, we got a single coming and we're going to sell some tickets. Um, so I do think the, 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 you know, overnight now, if you have 20 million followers, you can sell some Instagram ads and make a living. Um, so I think that, that they have to watch that fine line between driving their brand, uh, monetizing their brand, but ultimately if they're going to play long, they still got to put those hits. They got to have the playlist and they got to be, be able to connect on stage and sell arenas. I mean, I'd always tell that artist, sell the arena, sell the amphitheater. If you can sell the stadium, then start the monetization. Because you'll never, you'll never get that chance to get that run and build that business. But once you stand on stage as a stadium act and get that rarefied air, the next, the next 30, 40 years are set. But you got to get there. That you're, you're, you're defined as an artist on what you do on stage. And if you can get to that rarefied stadium, even that sellout arena business, you become a, 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 an artist uh, of a different caliber, and then you're probably going to be able to have a career, even if it's a diminishing career of casinos and fairs eventually. But the, the more people you can perform to, and really at live is where you make fans. On 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 you know on Spotify is where you you sell some some streams. But but you 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 cement long term fans when they see you live. Um, and the more you do that, and you put all that hard work in, and go global and go play some festivals, solidify that fan base, and then and then the monetization will come. Versus you get monetize it too fast and early, that artist isn't going to want to get on that plane and go all the way to Belgium to play that festival or build that build that roadshow. So, you know, I'm biased because I, I, I live in live, but we've seen it over and over. If you build a live audience, you build a fan base live, that magic that you make with that fan in that field or in that stadium or that festival carries your brand for a long time. And what is the status of Live Nation's management company? Is that a future business or we see that fade away, sold off? No, no, we, we, like, we like it. Um, to, you know, it started organically. So it's not, uh, it's, it's not meant to be uh, anything more than, than the obvious. We started with Jay-Z and Rock Nation and, was our kind of our first shot at being in business with an artist and a manager company. Um, and then we've expanded slowly over time. Obviously Irving was, was here for a bit and gone and we have over 17 management companies. Now we'd be investors in, um, I, I love that division artist nation. Uh, it's great to be that connected to the artist and the manager, see the world from their view, hear what's going on from the record deals to the, uh, to to the madness and in, uh, in, in in selling off sa- uh, their records and publishing rights and and obviously it helps drive our core business as if the if you're uh, if you're building those relationships it, it does it does ultimately get you to win a few jump balls um, when you're battling for the tour so we just you know concluded a, a deal recently we'll we'll keep building that division um, we think it's a good adjacent business to our core business high margin compared to uh, the concert business so. We, we like it. Okay. And what's the status of festivals, both domestically and worldwide? What do we know? There were a few, then there were too many. Where are we at now? 
you know, there's a, I think a little bit of a shakeout happened. Probably, obviously, COVID did did help. We we even shook out a few. I think we, I think we shut down twelve that weren't working that we didn't love over over our festival portfolio. Um, so I, I I think you're seeing the bars getting higher, which is um, to kind of make make a successful festival work. Um, so if you're lucky enough to be in that space like Lollapalooza is or Coachella or Bonnaroo or ACL, um, where you seem to be passage of right in, in that consumer space, they're fabulous businesses. Uh, I mean, Lollapalooza is, you know, I can't take any of the credit. It was everyone else, but, you know, what a brand they built that we're now sitting in all of these festivals in South America, over in Europe. It's true traveling festival brand that, uh, that's worked well. So uh, festivals are still... You know, consumers love them to death on a global basis. We have a couple hundred of them, and I love them still, whether they're boutique ideas like we're doing in England to big ideas. Um, I think they're still vibrant, still lots of landscape. I, I think, you know, you and I have talked about it. I think I don't, I don't think all of a sudden you can just launch a mainline festival with, you know, three different genres of music over the weekend and expect 100,000 anymore. I think they become... Like any industry, they went out wide. Then they it, the the big ones survived, and then the the, the niche ones started to create their own space. So uh, we see it happening now: the, a niche idea in a good location against a certain genre of music or a certain theme. Look, look at Eddie's festival we're doing in uh, uh, down near San Diego on the ocean, a real beach theme, kind of. Um, uh, sold out, in a, obviously uh, through COVID, sold out. But so I, I like the I like the super served ideas where they're hitting a certain target, certain location, um, and they're less they're almost less talent reliant because they have more of a thematic and soul to them, and those ones tend to work. And the band is the complement to the theme, not the, just a bad line. Or typically, we have a a good lineup with a bad name, and we think it's a festival, but it's not. It's got no soul, no, 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 no real reason for existing other than the lineup. So I think those are gone. We don't green light many of those anymore. If you've got a good idea or a great location, uh, those seem to be working well. Okay, if you use Elton John's uh, song, I'm Still Standing, you look at your tenure at Live Nation, there were a lot of people in power that are no longer there. You have remained. What makes you successful? both from the beginning and now you personally oh geez i know you'd have to come to my uh, therapy session on thursdays to to dig into that one <laughs> as we're as we're trying to solve that uh I, you know i i don't know none of us understand what our superhuman power is but uh um you know i, I think i got lucky early in life that I, I i really really loved live entertainment and uh, I, I found a passion early so I do think that's been part of the success, right? Because uh, from my early days, this was what I wanted to do. So I was very focused, been very focused on building this kind of business in this space. Um, uh, and I do think that's the, the, the real reason I'm successful. I didn't want to run a record label. I didn't want to run anything else, but I wanted to build a live concert company. And I think my focus and a little bit of my Thunder Bay warrior in me um, and that grit added together with that complete focused agenda is how we ended up kind of staying on course here. Most people that I was battling with or most things I've been through, they didn't have the obsessive focus I had on, 
a live event business. I mean, they might have wanted to be in business. They might have wanted a music business. They might have other agendas. But you had to wake up early and go to bed late to beat me on this core business idea because this is this is what I think about nightly, uh, daily. Yeah, but knowing a little bit more than we've talked about here so far, going back to the top, you were working for Labatt's. They had a company library. You literally read every book in the library. Yeah, you can say grit, but there's more of a dedication, more of an effort, obviously, an intelligence point, too, that is really a key component. Yeah, you know, um, maybe it's small town values. There's a little bit of Canadian in you. When you, when you grew up in Canada um, and you're, you know, you're, you're looking at ABC and CBS every day and looking at this big, big country called America, telling you how great they are. You, you definitely don't grow up in Canada thinking that you have any of the answers. You don't think you're the smartest on the block. You think you have a lot to prove and a lot to learn. So I would say from, from my insecure, small Thunder Bay roots, um, you know, my obsession with learning and trying to outwork and outlearn the other guy still exists today. So I think that that tenacity of I'm going to work harder and because I'm not the smartest guy in the room, I better read and understand and 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 kind of figure out every angle to the to the equation um, to get this job done. So absolutely, that 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 burning desire to learn, observe, digest um, has has stayed with me. I still don't think I've arrived. I don't think I got it figured out yet. I don't. I'm not resting on my laurels. So that tenacity to keep keep striving to be better, uh, haven't arrived yet has been, uh, I guess, probably a good, a good thing. Okay. In the live side of the business, uh, it's not like the, the way they used to shuffle the decks at record companies, which they've done a little bit less of now. And there are lifers, you know, Louis Messina, you know, a lot of other ones. How long do you plan to do this? You know, I, I would say what I love about the live business, very different than the record business. Um, you know, the record business has not produced a lot of entrepreneurs overall. You know, there's been a few big winners, obviously, Geffen and, you know, Jimmy and Clive. Um, but generally, they're, they're, they're like the movie studios. They work within an existing system. Um, I love the live business because it is filled with characters and entrepreneurs still to date. So I, I do believe one of the strengths of Live Nation is we've just been continually able to reinvent ourselves because, you know, the, the innovator's dilemma is always, how do you keep making your big company innovative? Well, you got to keep injecting it with some of the, the crazies, right? You got to inject it with entrepreneurship. Um, and, and every day we're waking up doing a new joint venture with the latest, you know, um, festival hustler, entrepreneur, venue operator, promoter. My company's filled with them. We have hundreds of joint ventures. Um, so I do find that we've been able to, although run a very big public company, uh, the entrepreneurial flair in me still gets fed uh, daily. And I get to deal and live with some of the greatest entrepreneurs, the crazies, the fun, the, um, the big thinkers. None of these guys in the entertainment space, in theory, have worked for a company, as you know, the Messinas, the Fogels. The Dennis Desmonds, the, the C3 guys, the Insomniac Pascals, um, the Ron Lafitte's, all the managers I work, none of them think they work for me. They don't work for a company. We're a federation. So 
I do find that exhilarating. I wouldn't be able to work in a traditional business like Labatt and others where it was just kind of filled with align workers. I, I do love the entrepreneurship that, that the live business feeds um, and reinvents itself. And overnight, there's a new entrepreneur, as you know. If he, if he finds the right field with the right idea, he can be the next Paul Tillette, right? So we're always on pursuit of uh, kind of like America's Got Talent. We're always looking for new talent. Um, we redefine ourselves by it. And, uh, and I love being part of that. And, and um, so that's, that's what finds it exciting. So it's, it's far from a job to me, as you know. You get lucky every now and then, find your passion, do it with great people, have success. I'll, I'll, I'll run this one as, uh, as long as it's still exciting and fun. Okay. Thank you, Michael. This has been so great. Thanks for talking to our audience. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sense. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.